Dear Lord, we thank you again for the cup of the new covenant, for the grace that has been extended to all who will receive. And Lord, this morning, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts. If there's one that does not know you today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. That they recognize their sin it separates them from you. But your method and your way and your payment of grace that has been offered for all who will receive. Lord, I invite you to open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive from your word and that transformation might occur. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray all of these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to remind you, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about a book, uh, which I, I would say, just for my own practical purposes, is one of the best books I've ever seen written on marriage called Sacred Marriage. We may have a couple left back there, um, but you can pick them up at any uh, Christian bookstore or online, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. We talked about how there are three aspects of marriage. There's the functional aspect, which is companionship, which is uh, sexual gratification, and procreation, but then number two, there's the covenant picture of the church and Jesus Christ. And marriage is meant to be a picture of that here on earth for us to understand better and for to be a witness to the world to see how Christ loves the church and how the church is to love Christ. And then thirdly, uh, it is meant to be a sanctifying process or a transformational process. And that's the position that this book right here takes. So just want to remind you of that. And if you have any interest, I think it's an excellent work and an excellent piece on that issue. Um, you know, if we had to look at one particular word in the New Testament that best describes God, then it would be this word I'm about to share with you. I believe this to be uh, potentially one of the most, if not the most powerful word that has been given to us since the time of Christ. It's a word that has been used to describe God. It's a word that is most affiliated and most used to describe God and His essence than any other word in the New Testament. It's a word that literally was the cause of transformation of cultures. Because of this word, many of the first charity hospitals begun. Thousands of orphanages were, were started. Infanticide greatly decreased, abortion diminished because of this word. It's a word that really didn't even exist hardly in the Greek language. Matter of fact, if we go back and look, we can only find it four times in any extra biblical writings, any secular writings used in the Greek vernacular. It's a word that we've heard if you've been around church for a while in the Greek form, it's called this, in the transliteration, agape. Agape. It's the word that is used in John 3.16 when it said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's the word that's associated with God all throughout the New Testament. It's a word that describes unconditional Free, unmerited love that is extended to us by God Almighty. It's a picture of a grace and a mercy that's beyond reasonability. It's a word that the Greek writers and the Greek culture didn't even really use, didn't really even understand. 
And it's a word that the Christian writers of the New Testament adopted to try to explain to a culture who only understood the gods in the pantheist stand, standpoint as those who sought to control, those who sought to maybe sometimes inspire or conspire, but never a God who was grace-oriented, unconditionally loved, moved by constant mercy and compassion, who desired to have an intimate relationship with His children, the people of earth, who extended free mercy and grace to all who would come. It was a term that was foreign to that culture. And unfortunately, it's foreign to our culture today. That word agape. There were other words that were used in the Greek languages. There was the word eros that we hear sometimes used. As a matter of fact, we get our word erotic even though it's probably not the best description today. But eros, it's not actually found in the New Testament. But it meant the romantic love that we so see on the television and the movies today. But it also had a, had a deeper meaning than that and a broader meaning that sometimes you might see something on television or in a play or music that just kind of really touches your heart. Eros love was a very familiar love, a love that was certainly celebrated in the Greek culture, in our culture today. There was also what we uh, might call epithumia, uh, a Greek New Testament word in its negative form. Its passion means lust or lust of the flesh. It needs an object to even exist. And maybe the word phileo or philos love, you've heard that word. It's the word that we get for Philadelphia, the brotherly love, a love of what, amongst friends. A love that is inviting and warm and welcoming. That was about as close as they could get to ascertaining what this love meant in which God came to earth and lived and gave himself willingly. Boy, it's really a hard concept to understand, isn't it? Agape. Agape love. Now, with this in mind... Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. This agape love that Paul's describing that's used here, and you know, it's often used for weddings. It wasn't really written for weddings. This is a love, whether I'm married or I'm single, if I'm a child or I'm a parent, that I can have for others. But it's difficult for us to explain and understand today. I'll try to give you some words, but they, they are very lacking. One sense that we need to grab and understand is that it's, a word that means loving. It means that I choose to love. You see, you sometimes hear people say, well, I just can't do something I don't feel. That would be hypocritical. Well, the real truth of it is, is that we, can't, we are not responsible and we can't always control what we feel. But we can control our choices. We can control how we respond. And really, that's the heart of agape love. That God has transformed our lives as we've experienced His grace and mercy. That I can choose how I want to respond. I don't have to go by simply what I feel. Because what I feel will always be self-preservation and self-advancement. I won't consider what God Almighty has asked me to be. And this is not even an innate part of my nature. Agape love. 
So this is a love that, quite frankly, we are commanded to love with. We're never commanded to uh, eros love someone. We're never commanded to love somebody with epithumia. We're never commanded to love someone in the phileo or philos love. But we are commanded to agape love. And I think if we're not Christ followers, if we're not applying biblical principles, then we're left, just as the Greeks were, with an exterior type of love that is very difficult to sustain for the long haul. So even if it's my ex-wife or ex-husband, even if it's my boss at work that I simply cannot stand, even though it may be someone that I feel has hurt my children in some way, I'm still commended to agape. I'm not, a, I'm not commended to be a friend and not commanded to love them with some great passion, but I am commanded to love them with agape. Very difficult. Now let's look with that understanding at what agape love is. Starting with verse 4, the Bible tells us here as the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says this, love is patient and love is kind. Here are the two words, the umbrella, if you would, if you would look at it from that perspective, of which everything else will fall under. Love is patient and kind. Talk about two difficult things to do, being patient and kind. I, I think it would be easier to, to work up some kind of um, emotion than to simply be patient and kind. As a matter of fact, here's the real truth of it is, I'm, I'm not very patient. If you're a man and you're reading this passage, it's like, can we go on to the things that I don't do and the things that I do well? Let's just get off the patient and kindness thing, okay? Love is patient. I'm not patient. Bless my poor wife's heart who has to live with me. I think she ought to be nominated for sainthood because I just struggle with patience. But I'm learning to be a little more patient. And sometimes when I am patient, I think I've really done something. And I want to share with you. You know, I've really been patient with you. I'd like you to know, I've really waited. I'm really being patient right now. It, it isn't interesting these two words are put together, patient and kind, because kindness doesn't remind people how patient you are. That's really it. You know, it, it, some of us, we can get there, oh, I'm patient, but I sure need to let you know. You need to know how patient I'm being. I mean, I'm really doing, I'm really loving you right now. Kindness is, you don't need to tell them that. You don't need to tell them how patient and wonderful you are and what a great act of charity that you're displaying to them. Kindness. To be kind. To not seek retribution. To not try to even the score. To not make sure they know. They understand how big of a person you're being. Patient and kind. Agape. It's not very natural, is it? And he goes into the stuff that Love is not, it's not envy, it's not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude. And, you know, and if I'm thinking simply in the marriage sense, yeah, I'd do all that. But if I think more generally, more exhaustively, how do I handle those when Jesus said, love your enemies? What in the world was he talking about? He's talking about this. Being patient, being kind, not envying. Not boasting or bring power. Not being rude. Just not being rude. 
whether it be in marriage or whether it be in our other relationships, not always win-lose, not just self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Boy, that's a little weapon that sometimes we like to use, isn't it? I tell you, remember the last time we did this? Do you remember about five years ago? Do you remember ten years ago? Do you remember twenty years ago? Of course you don't. You never remember anything. Record of no wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. I am so glad that that happened. This is exactly what I told you was going to happen. You're getting what you deserve right now. If you'd have done what I asked you to do, we've talked about this time and time again. Actually, I'm kind of rejoicing. I'm kind of glad this all happened to you. Rejoicing in evil, but rejoices in truth. That you've come to that place where you realize the truth that God has given for us to understand that I am loved and I am fully accepted. It always protects and it trusts. Trust that God is working, that God is moving, that the agape love of God is transcending our lives and always hopes and perseveres. Well, that's all well and good, but how do I practically apply that today? How do I apply that within my marriage today, you might be asking? Well, I think there are some good ways that we can do it. First of all, I want us to look at the opposite of what agape is. If agape is loving and gracious and kind and patient and generous, what is the opposite of that? And Paul gave us eight descriptions, but let's talk about practically how they can apply today. I'm going to call these unrealistic expectations of your marriage, or you might even call them dumb attitudes if you want to. But these are things that hinder and hurt and actually can even destroy our marriages and our relationships if we're not careful. How about this attitude? My spouse needs to make the changes. There are some changes that need to happen, and he needs to make them, or she needs to make them. I'm going to stand here and watch. Until she makes those changes, till he makes those changes. That's a really, if I can say that, I know they're children here. That's a really dumb attitude, okay? Because guess what? You married a sinner. And you probably should have known that before you got married. But maybe your epithumia was so high that you missed that part. We all married sinners and we all have faults in our lives. And the real truth of it is, is you're not going to make your spouse change. I don't care how much you nag. I don't care how much you complain, how much you cry, how much you yell and scream and cuss. Guess what? They'll probably just get worse if you keep doing that, all right? That's just the sad truth. Aren't you glad you came here today? You know what you're going to need to do is you're going to say, God, what can I do to be a better spouse? God, how can I handle? How can I learn to be patient? How can I learn to be kind? How can I learn to, to persevere? Look inward and say, God, what are the things that I need to adjust? How can I make changes? And as your spouse begins to see you grow, you'll start to see them begin to respond a little differently over a long period of time. It doesn't sound easy and doesn't sound fair, but it's called reality. Don't keep insisting that they make a change. Begin to say, what are the changes that I need to make? Number two, 
Another attitude that will kill a marriage. My spouse should make me happy. I'm not happy. Doggone it. And they're not making me happy. I'll never forget this. One girl said, a former church said, you know, before I got married, I was lonely and unhappy. And now I'm married and I'm married and lonely and unhappy. The real truth of it is, is we usually pull whatever bothered us in marriage. We pull it right in there with us. And marriage doesn't fix that. Marriage doesn't change that. The truth of it is, is you're gaining a companion, not a transformer. Your life has to be transformed by the power of Christ and by choices that you make. Your spouse is not going to make you happy. And I know that's not what you want to hear. And I know if I go home and I turn on the television, I'll see some movie. Ah, oh, there's Julia Roberts and her life. You know, she's happy. She found her fourth mate or whatever it was that made her happy. You know what I mean? And we, we go into that mentality and thinking that they're supposed to make me happy. And if I could just get away from them, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Happiness is going to come when you begin to sustain the feeling of a relationship, or excuse me, a relationship with God in which you say, God, how do you want to use me? God, what do you want to do with me? God, use me, make me, conform me to your image. God, I want to bring you glory for it's the purpose for which I was created. Number three, my spouse should never hurt me. Oh, I'm sorry, ladies. You know, God created men for you to marry, and sometimes you probably think they created them to hurt you. My poor wife, I'll never forget after a first year of marriage, I heard her telling a friend of mine, or excuse me, a friend of hers, she goes, you know, I don't think I've ever hurt Ron's feelings, but I think he's hurt mine every day that we've been married. I was so blessed. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes your spouse is going to hurt you. Sometimes they're going to say things. They're going to do things. And it's not a matter of if, but when it happens, how are you going to handle it? And, you know, as we talked about last week, you don't just ignore it. You let them know and say, you know, I'd like to talk to you about something very respectfully and honorably. My feelings were really hurt when this occurred, and I'd really like to talk about it. And if you're receiving that, receive it, and don't try to correct it. Don't try to be logical. I, I, I confess I struggle with that. But receive it and say, I, I'm sorry you're hurt, and I, I don't want to do that again, and I want you to forgive me. Recognize hurt's going to come. It's not a matter if. How are you going to handle it? Number four. This ought to be one of your favorite ones. My spouse should read my mind. They should know what what's mad, I'm mad about. They should know what's wrong. And I'm not going to tell them. I mean, you should just be able to figure that out on your own, young man. I can just confess to you, a lot of times I don't know. I'm like Jeff Foxworthy. I did something wrong, didn't I? And you're not going to tell me what it is. I'd like permission to go to my room and think about it and see if I can come up with it and, and therefore be able to come back and, and apologize to you. Would that be okay? <laughs> you know what? That's kind of a child-parent relationship when we start doing that. We've got to just share. Here's what bothered me. If you're not ready to share, that's fine. But here's what bothered me, and, and here's how it made me feel. And quit expecting them to just figure it out on their own. There's a reason that they're acting like that because they don't know. Or they don't understand the gravity of the situation. Next, how about this one? My spouse should trust me without question. They should just always trust me. 
No matter what, makes me mad when they ask me where I've been. Makes me mad when they ask questions. Hey, can I tell you this? Love, agape love is unconditional and it's freely given. And trust certainly is a risk. We need to think the best of our spouse, expect the best. But trust is also earned. When we break trust, we have to repair it with humans. And it's just a part of the way it is. And so sometimes there are some boundaries that need to be established. And that's okay. Sometimes that's very healthy. Number six, my spouse should be perfect at sex. Get over that. Just go ahead and get over it right now, okay? Hey, we're again, we're all sinful human beings. And we all have watched way too many television ads. We've seen too many billboards. We've watched too many movies. We've read too many books that have this unrealistic fantasy of the way it's supposed to be. And we just got to come back to reality and recognize that sex is a gift that God gave us. And it is to be enjoyed. But it is not a sustainable pleasure that we're always going to live in that euphoric mentality that I'm going to get and it's going to be everything I always wanted to be. And if, if you don't believe that, ask your spouse because you, you ain't it either, okay? It goes both ways. I promise you the other one's not going, oh, boy, you're awesome all the time. They're not saying that. So they got to live with you. you got to live with them, okay? But you can enjoy and simply recognize this is a gift that God has given us. And it's an opportunity for me to share love. It's an opportunity for you to share my heart and to share part of me. And then number seven, critical. My spouse should never fight with me. No, you're going to fight. Matter of fact, you should fight sometimes. I would like to take this opportunity to say that my wife and I, we, we fight pretty well. We are pretty good at fighting. We're pretty good at it. I would put ourselves up against a lot of people. I'm sure there are people a lot better than us, but we actually know how to fight pretty well. And let's just look at a few things that I think are imperative for us to be able to have a good fight that's healthy. Number one, we shared this before a couple of weeks ago. Remember, you're on the same team. Remember, you are on the same team. Just like I brought out the jerseys and said, both of us have the same jersey. We're on the same team. That's not the enemy. Remember that. Number two, check your deadly weapons at the door. Okay? And what I mean by that, not literal weapons, but, um, you know, I, I grew up and learned how to fight not fair. I'll just put it that way. And so I, I'm actually there are all kind of wicked things that have come to my mind that I want to say when I get really angry. And through the grace of God, most of the time, I'm able to take a step back and not say them. Now, I could let those fly, and I might feel better, but I would damage my wife and damage the marriage more than I would help. If it's only important to win, then I can do that. But if I want to win at marriage, if I really see us as a team, then there are things I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say things that are berating. I'm not going to say things that I know will hurt her and cause her uh, to to hurt. I'm not going to do things that would belittle her and make her feel small or back her into a corner. Okay, so I'm going to be careful about what I say, about what I do, uh, about how I even use my voice, which is very, very difficult uh, for me. So I want to check those weapons at the door and not bring those weapons, my advantages, what I'm good at, how I can attack into that fight. 
Number three, I want to agree upon the time that we can sit down and have this conversation. You know, in almost every marriage, this is the situation. One of you wants to deal with it right then. Let's talk this out right now. We're going to lock the door and you're not getting out of here till we fix this thing. Well, that's all well and good if that's your personality, but you've got someone else who, I'm not even sure what's going on yet. I know what we're talking about. I know what you're mad about. Agree. You know what? One hour from now, we're going to sit down and talk about this. Two hours from now. Four hours from now, whatever it is. But today, we're going to talk about this, and we're going to deal with this, but not this moment. And that's a very healthy thing to do, uh, because, again, I, I told you about, I shared a little window of me. If I go in that emotional state, I'm going to say things that I should not say, and I wish I had not said later on, and it just will not be healthy, and we'll get stuck over here. So I need an hour to calm down. Let's think about this. Now let's talk about it reasonably. That's, that's a very healthy thing. So don't force your partner in your time timetable, okay? Now, this is not acceptable either. We'll talk about that in a week. Okay? That day, if at all possible, make it that day. And, you know, by the grace of God, that's one area that we've done well at. I, I can't hardly ever remember a time that we haven't come to a place where we've settled it that day. And I think that is a huge issue in marriage. Uh, number four. Commit to work out the conflict with each other, with each other, and not involve multiple other people. In other words, don't go tell all your friends how terrible your husband is or how terrible your wife is. Because the, you know what we're doing then, and it's the enemy, we're just looking to feed that we're right and to intensify our thought that I'm right and they're a loser. And I'm going to tell everybody they're a loser. And that's going to reaffirm it. And then I'm going to get some people to help me think they're a loser. And then I'm going to wonder, what's wrong with my marriage? Hey, one's probably enough. If there's somebody you want to confide in, that's great. If you're going to do more than one, you ought to have your spouse's permission. And if you need more than that, then see a counselor. That's really okay, too. We can give you some good Christian counselors. That's great. But I promise you it will not help your marriage to tell 50 people what a loser your husband is. I promise you. It doesn't help your children. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help them. Matter of fact, you are pretty much assuring that you're going to put even further distance in your relationship by doing that. But I know it's very natural and common to want to do it. But find one. Make a commitment. I'll tell one, maybe two if they're twins. Okay? Number five. Commit to listen to the Holy Spirit when He convicts you to forgive Commit to listen and respond to the Holy Spirit when he convicts you to forgive. And I'm particularly talking about when you were the one that was wronged or you feel that you were the one that was wronged. The Spirit of God is going to always come in and convict us to repair and to restore and to forgive. And the real truth of it is it's very seldom 100% one person and the other person has zero responsibility. Even if I have 1%, I want to express Forgiveness. I want to express grace. I want to express my need to recognize, hey, here's what I want to change. Here's what I want to deal with. So those are some good rules for how to fight. And um, here's what I want to challenge you to. Uh, there, was a, there was a counselor who did a study uh, many years ago. And uh, here's what he found out. That uh, he took, I think, I can't remember how many it was, if it was 100 or or 200, whatever the number was, but he took three groups and he said, all right, the first group, I want to ask you to just go home and pray 
about your marriage situation. Go home and pray and just uh, pray that things get better. And I want you to take six weeks to do that and then come back. And uh, then the next group, he said, here's some principles I want you to apply. Here's some little techniques you can use. I want you to go back and really try to use these and then come back. And then the third group, he said, I want you to go and I want you to pray with someone. I want you to find somebody who will pray specifically with you and help you to know what to pray and help you pray about this issue for the next six weeks. At five weeks, he called them back in a week before the study was done. And what he found was the ones that he just sent home to pray on their own, they virtually saw no change. The ones that applied the techniques, about 20% of them were doing better. The ones who went back and prayed with someone for six weeks and five weeks up to this point, 80% of them said they, they sensed the power of God working and transforming in their lives. I want to give you that opportunity today. On the back of your bulletin, there's a little tear-off. And if you would be willing to say, hey, I want to pray with somebody. I will pray, and we're, this person is not going to be a therapist or a counselor. They just want to pray with you. I would be willing to pray over the phone with someone uh, once a week for the next six weeks. Uh, I want to invite you to do that. Maybe you're willing to, to be a prayer partner and say, hey, I would be willing to help someone in that manner as well. You, will, uh, you can do that as well, but it's on the back of your bulletin. We, we want to help you, but can I tell you this? The Bible tells us in James 5:16 to confess our faults one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Let's go back to these three principles. Number one, do you believe there's a God? Number two, do you believe that through His Word, He can change your life and your situation? Number three, will you commit to pray and be accountable? It's that simple. Let's pray today. Father, I thank You that Your grace is more than enough. I thank You that Your peace is made most perfect in our weakness. And Lord, uh, as we come before you today, we recognize our need for you and our need for grace, our need for forgiveness. Lord, if there's one here today who doesn't know you, I pray that they would come and receive that grace and forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. That they would recognize their sin, ask for your forgiveness and accept you as their savior. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling in their relationships, Lord, that they would take that step and say, Lord, I, teach me to pray. I, I need help, God. I, I want to see a change. And I'm willing to do whatever you ask of me. God, I pray that that process would begin today. And Lord, we will give you the glory for what you will do. In your name I pray. Amen.